0: Who invented the alarm clock? Is it possible that until the alarm clock was invented, we didn't even need alarm clocks? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo.
1: And now a word from ZipRecruiter, our presenting sponsor. When it comes to hiring, we can learn a lot from Vikings, Hi, I'm Ian Siegel, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Being an entrepreneur and owning a business has been a dream of mine since I was a kid, and I've learned a lot of interesting things while turning that dream into a reality. Like, why talking like a Viking can be helpful when you're hiring. More on that later. I founded ZipRecruiter because I knew there was a simpler, more efficient, and more effective way for people to find jobs that they love and for businesses to find fantastic employees. And if you're hiring now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com/seth. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So try it for free at ziprecruiter.com/seth. See you later in the show.
0: This episode of Akimbo was recorded in front of a live audience of 12,000 people on Facebook Live. Because if we're going to do it live, we should do it live. Synchronization. Synchronize your watches. Get everybody in the same place at the same time. Wake up early. It's time to go to work. When did this all start? Fairly recently, we changed our clocks. But this year, for the first time in 100 years, it was the smoothest ever because now the clocks change themselves. Nobody shows up at a meeting anymore and says, Oh, I'm sorry I'm late. I forgot that we changed the clocks. Because everyone knows what time it is, exactly what time it is, except for your microwave oven and maybe your car. It always knows what time it is. How did that happen and why did it happen? And what do we need it for? Well, let's start with time zones. There didn't used to be time zones. There used to just be the church in the middle of town with a bell on it. And every single town had a slightly different time. It was noon over here and 12.05 over there and 12.15 over there and 12.30 over there. Of course it was, because you couldn't be in Yorkshire and London at the same time anyway. So wherever you were, whatever time it was in that town is what time it was. And we didn't really need to sweat it that much because most people didn't have a watch. And the cows, the cows and the sheep, didn't really care if you were five or 10 minutes late or early to come take care of them. You know, I know that my dog likes to wake me up in the morning and that's because Baxter has an internal clock, but he's not that accurate either. So why did we need to figure out how to synchronize our watches? Well, it began with the trains because the thing is, If every single town has a different time, it's really hard for the people who are running the train line to tell you what time the train is going to pick you up. And so with intention, the folks who ran the Transcontinental Railroad took out a map and drew some lines and announced where the time zones would be. And there's a lot of history here that we don't need to go into. But what we understood around then was this. We need everybody to show up at work at the same time. And the reason we need you to show up at work at the same time is because if I'm working on widget number seven and you're working on widget number eight and she's working on widget number nine and we don't have widget number eight because you came in late, the whole factory slows down. So synchronization became really important. And I would like to begin by arguing that except for maybe some cave paintings in France, almost all the interactions human beings had for a million years was in real time. Face to face, be here now. That's obvious, but then it shifts. It shifts because being out of sync, called async, right? Is actually a lot more efficient than everything having to happen when it happens. In 1806, someone wrote down a story that goes a little like this. A kind cobbler, not doing very well, scraping by, gives a pair of shoes to someone who doesn't have it. A poor person now has a pair of shoes. Well, the cobbler barely has enough money to buy one more piece of leather to make the next pair of shoes. He cuts the leather, leaves it out, goes to bed. The next morning he wakes up, the leather's not there anymore. It's been fashioned into a beautiful pair of shoes. The cobbler sells that pair of shoes, makes enough money, then you buy two bits of leather, lays it out that night. Next thing you know, the elves come and put it together as a reward for his good-hearted nature. The magic of this, other than rewarding the philanthropist who had little to give, is that he didn't have to sit there and watch them make the shoes. He laid it out, and then it got done. Being asynchronous, it turns out, is in this constant cycle with things that are in sync. So, mailing a letter versus going to a meeting. Well, in 1842, if you mail somebody a letter, you can write it whenever you want. They can read it whenever they want. And it's way more efficient than if the two of you have to get together and have a meeting. Okay, back and forth. Now we have letters, but then we invent the telegram. The telegram is also asynchronous, but it's a little bit faster. You know what destroyed the telegram? The phone. The phone is synced up. I can't have a phone conversation with you if you're not on the phone at the same time. And so something magical happens when we're having an interaction in real time, even though it's not as efficient. Well, let's think about commerce. Mark Twain, one of the greatest authors of his time, wrote a book called Huck Finn. How did Mark Twain make a living? He did not make a living from asynchronously delivering his book to people who read it when they wanted to read it, bought it when they wanted to buy it, shared it when they wanted to share it. Mark Twain made a living by giving speeches, by getting paid to get on a train, cross time zones, show up in a building, and have people in the room with him in real time. Or consider the shift of thousands of years of people going to church at a certain time in their neighborhood versus what happened when Fulton Sheen and other televangelists went on television, pre-recorded stuff. Think about the difference between recording TV shows in the 60s, Mary Tyler Moore or Carol Burnett versus Saturday Night Live. We keep shifting back and forth from being in sync to being asynchronous. And the history of tech and culture is all about that because asynchronous keeps getting more efficient because you can do it on your schedule. But being in sync gets more real. It makes us feel differently about what we're going to see. Why pay $600 to see the live production of Hamilton when, if there's ever a movie, you could see it for twelve? because they're going to stick to the script either way. You're sitting far enough from the screen that you can't actually hear them breathing. What's the difference? The difference is you are there. Martin Luther is famous for inventing Protestantism, for Lutheranism, for standing up and saying there's a different way for us to be in the world as Christians. But he also did something else. He translated the Bible from Latin to German. And as a result, if Dan Carlin's wonderful podcast is to be believed, all of Europe almost burned down to the ground. Why? Because if the Bible's written in the local language, it's asynchronous. You can read it at home, you can draw your own conclusions. You don't need an expert to intervene between you and this book. Whereas if it's in Latin, The only way to encounter it is in real time, surrounded by the culture, surrounded by the expert who is telling you what it says. That's a big, dangerous shift. Let's fast forward a few hundred years to this Chinese idea of Jibo. It turns out that more people in China have live cast themselves the way I'm doing with you right now than there are humans in the United States that more than half the population of China has done this, and that it is, last year, a $4 billion industry. Because as people are showing up on camera doing what the folks at Facebook wish you were doing, which is live casting themselves, the audience sends them gifts and money because something is happening in real time. So you may think I'm cherry-picking examples. I got a bunch more here. you ready? Think about what happened with the fax machine. The fact machine was just like a letter, but faster. And around the same time, CB radio took off. What's CB radio? Nothing ever interesting happened on CB radio, but it happened right now. It was live, right? This idea of let's do it live. Think about the difference between email, super efficient, versus chat, extraordinarily inefficient. But the fact is, chat, SMS, makes your phone buzz. And in the meeting, you take it out, I gotta see who's texting me, which is totally different than email. Email used to make your phone buzz, but because it's so efficient, we realize we don't have to get a buzz, we can deal with it later, right? Think about the difference between a blog, which I can show up and do year after year, day after day, at my schedule, versus this, or Skype, or Zoom, some other way that we're gonna talk real time. Couple more, Facebook posts versus Zoom, YouTube, which looks and feels live sometimes, and if you read the comments, please don't, on a YouTube video, the people are commenting as if the person who made the video is reading what they said while they are making the video.
1: Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live!
0: Which is absurd because it's asynchronous. And one more, which is the idea of uh, McDonald's, versus getting a fancy omakase sushi dinner. When you go to McDonald's, they made that hamburger before you even walked in the door. When you go to a fancy omakase dinner, you're sitting across from the chef, and that's what you're paying for. It is unfolding in real time. It is not an efficient batch process. Okay, so in the United States, you may recall that chat roulette was the sensation of the day a little while ago. Why? I mean, talk about banal and inane. Nothing ever happened that was worth noting on Chat Roulette, except it was real. It was now. It was present. I was at a great conference a couple weeks ago. And in order to make the conference goers feel present, they asked everybody not to tweet until the event was over. And then when the event was over, they gave everybody a hashtag. And it's interesting to note, that according to the search I did, less than a dozen of the 300 people who were there tweeted. And the reason is, it's about being live. So I guess where this leaves us is this. We need to be really careful. Careful about the next technology we invent. Are we inventing it because we want the urgency of live? Or are we inventing it because we want the efficiency of being out of sync? Number two, we need to be super careful about what's pressing our button, because we're either the product or the user. And if you're sucked in to a maelstrom of live, it might be that you're the product, that they didn't build it for you, they built it so that you would use it so they could sell you and sell your attention and manipulate you. And that now that we're spending hours and hours a day tethered to the supercomputer in our pocket, the question is, did we get anything in exchange? What does a good day feel like? What did we build? What can we point back to and say that mattered? So those cave paintings in France, they're still there. And I don't know what any of the other cave men were doing and the cave women were doing, but the, the paintings are still there. On the other hand, as Chung Trump Trompa Rinpoche and the other great Buddhist teachers would teach us, being here now, being present is a key part Of being who we want to be and doing it the way that we want to do it, so there's no one right answer. It's both, but we can be mindful about which ones we pick. How do we do, Sam?
1: Good. That's it.
0: What do you mean? That's it. That was my podcast. Can
1: we stop?
0: No, we're gonna keep talking now. Like that's what (laughs) editing is for. We're about to make this an asynchronous thing. Usually, when I make a podcast. I don't do it all in a row like that. Usually when I make a podcast, it's like, oh, wait, I need to stop here and think. And I couldn't do that because I was doing it live. It's very stressful. Because, uh-huh. like, usually when I'm doing a Facebook Live, it's like, oh, it's over. That was fun. But this is going to be around. It's async meets sync at the same time. Wow.
1: I'm all a nerd. I wasn't sure.
0: We may have to do this again one day. Okay. This episode of Akimbo was recorded in front of a live audience of 12,000 people on Facebook Live. Because if we're going to do it live, we should do it live. In a minute, we'll have answers to your questions from last time. But first, a message from our presenting sponsor, Zip Recruiter.
1: Hi again. This is Ian Siegel, CEO of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So here's a quick interview tip. A lot of people, when they're interviewing a candidate... They try to make a friend, and the reality is that's not a great way to figure out what it's going to be like to work with someone. It's because everybody's on their best behavior. That's why my number one interview tip is to talk like a Viking. And what do I mean by that? I mean be direct. If they say something that you like, you tell them that you like what they just said, and you see how they react. If they say something you don't like, you also tell them that, and you see how they react when you give them feedback that some would consider to be tough to take. That's one of the most important reads you can get in an interview, and it's the way to find out what it's like to really work with somebody. That's the importance of being direct. I hope you found it helpful. Here's something else that may be helpful. If you're hiring, you can try ZipRecruiter for free today. ZipRecruiter has helped businesses of all sizes and across all industries hire great people. In fact, 80% of employers who use ZipRecruiter find a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com Seth. That's ZipRecruiter.com Seth.
0: If you'd like to ask a question about this episode, I'd love to hear it. Just visit akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and press the appropriate button. We'd love to hear your questions. Thank you.
1: Hey, Seth. This is Brian
0: from New York. There are some obvious drawbacks to
1: having a closed mind, if you will. But it seems like there may be some benefits. It seems exhausting to be constantly questioning everything or even figuring out what it is that you're assuming. I would love to hear your thoughts.
0: People who embrace the status quo, people who are neophobic, afraid of new ideas, people who in any given setting have chosen not to seek out the new. They're not wrong. They're not dumb they're not foolish. They're actually doing something that works. And we know from evolution that very few creatures survive by being obsessed with the new. So we must begin with the empathy for people who are waiting for it to come around, waiting for it to be embraced, because they're actually adopting, in many cases, a good long-term strategy. The big exception and the thing that changes things for people compared to just about every other creature is that we live in culture, and culture changes, and culture is hot, and culture is about interactions, and all of that evolves as well. And so if you work or live in a culture that's moving quickly and you don't, then you pay the price for falling behind. Plus,
1: it's fun. Hey, Seth. Scott Lindroth here from Chicago, Illinois. As an entrepreneur, I find that I sometimes chase things because we think they're going to be the next great idea that will spread fast and break the rules and will become the status quo
0: in the future. If you're not just a follower of the status quo, and you're someone like myself who wants to
1: get out there and fight the current rules, how can you do that without getting burned like you are an investor of the Betamax machine? Thanks.
0: I hear you. Being on your horse, Don Quixote style, fencing at windmills, trying to change the status quo. It's exhausting. So the solution that I suggest is super simple, but difficult to get your arms around, which is instead of trying to change the big thing, instead of seeking out the biggest possible market, success lies in serving the smallest viable audience. What's the smallest group of people you can bring your idea to and still be able to survive? So if we think about the famous Sony example, it turns out that for decades, Sony did great in the industrial marketplace that almost every TV show you've ever seen has been edited on Sony tape machines because that market, the smallest viable market for Sony, paid off. It's only when they tried to shift to a different place with different rules that the story, mostly apocryphal, Kicked in. So, therefore, our work as agents of change is to seek out the smallest group that we can serve, serve wholeheartedly where we can actually make change happen. And then sometimes, if everything goes right, it crosses that chasm and reaches a larger group.
1: Hi, this is Sean from Kansas City. I work in the healthcare field, and a lot of what we do is about behavior change. Is there a way that we can better take the data that shows behavior change is necessary and convert it into a story form that people can relate to?
0: Thanks for this question. And I think it gets right to the heart of how we go ahead and help people change their behavior. If you're trying to get people who are used to the regular kind to adopt a different lifestyle, deal with a health issue going to them with science, with facts, with a rational argument, isn't going to work very well. What works is a story that matches what they're open to hearing. What does that mean? It means that some people will respond to, oh, do you want to be in an experimental trial? Do you want to try this risky new kind of surgery? Do you want this new approach? But not most people most people are going to respond to the thing that offers them the regular kind. So when you can say to that sort of patient, well, 80% of the people who have what you have choose this as the approach, that's going to resonate with that person. The challenge that doctors and scientists have is they think that the world thinks about problems the way that they do. In fact, everyone has that problem. No one, thinks about problems the way that you do. Not exactly. But we can clump people together and learn to see the way they see and thus tell a story that they can hear. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. People are talking about the marketing seminar. I was completely blown away.
1: It is incredibly comprehensive. Crazy, crazy crazy useful. It's it's easily worth five times what I paid for the course. The content in the class was awesome. What I learned, I actually could apply immediately and get results. I thought it's going to be kind of an automated course. And the big shock is the cohort. I have never felt more supported in any online program I've done.
0: And that actually changed the way we talk about the project. It changed the way we promote it on our website. I use it
1: in other projects. A way to really evaluate it and to apply it that I have never experienced anywhere else. It's so much more than just a marketing seminar.
0: Find out more at themarketingseminar.com.